I want to speak on wisdom and uh, uh, from the perspective of the wisdom that is ours uh, in the Bible, in the 66 books of the Bible. And uh, what I want to do is I want to uh, tell you how it is, uh, what has to be uh, true of your life uh, for you to receive the wisdom that is in the Bible. What has to be true of your life uh, for you to receive the wisdom that is in the Bible. And I think that for that to be true, you have to understand the perspective that the Bible is written from. So that's, that's what I want to do. If you could turn in your Bibles, uh, this might be one of those times that I, I think I will do this. If you could turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible today, if you could turn to the table of contents. Turn to the table of contents in your Bible, because this is what I have to do. Um, in so many ways, I'm a bad Christian, and I've never memorized the books of the Bible. That's one of my ways of being a bad Christian, because I always figure if it's got a table of contents, I could look it up. So um, find the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's one of the, uh, we're talking on wisdom, it's one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Five books in the middle of the Old Testament are the, are the wisdom or the poetical books. And if you can find Ecclesiastes, turn to Ecclesiastes. There will be a, a really handy page number there in the table of contents. So you can turn right to it. You don't have to try to impress everybody that you already know it. And then get this little, whatever this thing is, and put that at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That's where we're going to end up, is Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you're talking about wisdom and you're talking about the wisdom in the Bible and the wisdom uh, that uh, the Bible offers us, uh, I think it's important to know where that wisdom came from. And there's no better person uh, to tell us about the wisdom of the Bible than the guy that's the template and the template for writing the wisdom of the Bible. His name is Solomon. And I want to just uh, to help you think through where the Bible comes from and what God is doing through his word uh, and by looking at the life of Solomon. I want to look at the three times that God spoke to Solomon. Solomon was king of Israel. He followed King David, his uh, father. There were three kings of Israel, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. King David, his father, was, uh, had uh, the kingdom, took it to its apex, and Solomon would be a part of that too. But he ruled for, uh, Saul ruled for 40 years, David ruled for 40 years, and Solomon ruled for 40 years. God spoke to Solomon three times. God spoke to Solomon three times, and I believe that Solomon was being prepared by God to write a big part of the Proverbs. Proverbs are those pithy one-liners uh, that I believe are inspired, and I believe that they are uh, basic truths about life. I don't think they're promises from God. I think they're simply uh, basic truths about life. And the Bible views, uh, views wisdom as skillful living. And what Matt was saying, that you find out more and more, and of course the most skillful life ever lived according to God's wisdom was Jesus Christ himself, and it was all about giving your life away to others. But I want you to think about uh, what's going on in the heart of God and what was going on with Solomon when he wrote the Proverbs. So the first place we'll land is in uh, the first appearance, 1 Kings chapter 3, and I'm going to put this up on the, on the screen for you. They're going to put it up on the screen. You can go with me, and I have it in the message. Uh, I like the message when I'm reading narrative literature, and narrative literature is just telling the story uh, because it helps us. This first one is in Saul's younger years. It's 1 Kings 3. 
5 through 15, the young king had it all. He had talent, he had training, he had knowledge, and this is God blessing him and giving him what he asked for. So this is God's first appearance um, to Solomon. The king went to Gibeon, that's north of Jerusalem, the most prestigious of the local shrines to worship. He sacrificed a thousand whole burnt offerings on that altar. That night, there in Gibeon, God appeared to Solomon in a dream. God said, what can I give you? Ask. This is where Solomon shows some of his truly uh, heart for God uh, wisdom. You you think about a young man, uh, you say, God says, whatever you want, ask. I, I hate to imagine what I would have asked for as a young man, I don't think I would have did what Solomon did. Solomon said, and I always tell myself, well, he didn't have to ask for much because he was already rich and famous and the king of Israel, so I got to give him that. But nevertheless, he did a pretty good thing. Solomon said, you were extravagantly generous in love with David, my father, and he lived faithfully in your presence. His relationships were just and his heart right. Interesting the way Solomon kind of spun that one, isn't it? His relationships were just, except for most of them. But his heart was right. That's what God says. And you have persisted in this great and generous love by giving him and this very day a son to sit on his throne. He goes on. And now here I am, God. My God, you have made me your servant, ruler of the kingdom in place of David, my father. I'm too young for this. A mere child, I don't know the ropes, hardly know the ins and outs of this job. And here I am, set down in the middle of the people you've chosen, a great people, far too many to ever count. Here's what I want. Give me a God-listening heart. I think the message does a really good job of translating the Hebrew there. Most of the more uh, perfecting translations will say an understanding heart, a wise heart. Literally, the Hebrew word means a hearing heart, a hearing heart. So a God-listening heart is good. So I can lead your people well, discerning the difference between good and evil, for who on their own is capable of leading your glorious people? God the master was delighted with Solomon's response, and God said to him, because you have asked for this and haven't grasped after a long life or riches or the doom of your enemies, but you have asked for the ability to lead and govern well, I'll give you what you ask for. I'm giving you a wise and mature heart. There's never been one like you before, and there'll never be one after. As a bonus, I'm giving you both the wealth and glory you didn't ask for. There's not a king anywhere who will come up to your mark. And if you stay on course keeping your eye on the life map and the God signs, as your father David did, I'll also give you a long life. Solomon woke up. What a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, took his place before the chest of the covenant of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and worshiped by sacrificing whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then he laid out a banquet for everyone in his service. Young Solomon, he's got it made. He's the king of, of Israel. God is, uh, is, is affirming him. And he has this uh, God-listening heart. And he, and, and he wants a God-listening heart. He wants wisdom. And so God grants it. 
God grants it. Told him, I want you to stay on course. I want you to stay on course. Then we drop down 20 years later and his second appearance. At this point, uh, Solomon is at the height of his glory. He's a successful king. He had done it all. He had built the temple. He had secured the throne. He had brought peace to the land. And this is the day that God filled the temple that his father David, think about it for Solomon. His father David wanted to build this temple. God said, no, you got too much violence. You're not the one to do it. I'm going to have Solomon do it. And Solomon was very close to his father David. So it's a huge day for Solomon. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And it would remain in the temple until the time of Ezekiel when it would leave because of the sins of Israel. So these would be the, what are considered the golden years. The golden years of Solomon. After Solomon had completed building the temple of God in his own palace, all the projects he had set his heart on doing, God appeared to Solomon again, just as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And God said to him, I've listened to and received all your prayers, your ever so passionate prayers. So what do you know about Solomon here? For these 20 years, he's been asking for this God-listening heart, and he has been walking closely. In New Testament terms, it'd be like 1 John. He was abiding in his relationship with God. He, he was comfortable there, and God was comfortable in his life. I've sanctified this temple that you have built. My name is stamped on it forever. My eyes are on it, and my heart in it always. As for you... If you live in my presence as your father David lived, pure in heart and action, living the life I've set out for you, attentively obedient to my guidance and judgments, then I'll back your kingly rule over Israel, make it a sure thing on a solid foundation. He goes on, the same guarantee I gave David your father I'm giving to you. You can count on always having, having a descendant on Israel's throne. This time there's a warning with it. But if your sons betray me, ignoring my guidance and judgment, taking up with alien gods by serving and worshiping them, then the guarantee is off. It's real important for us to understand that this was, uh, this was a conditional promise. This was God letting them know that I'll take this back. I'll wipe Israel right off the map and repudiate this temple. I've just sanctified to honor my name. And Israel will become nothing but a bad joke among the peoples of the world. And this temple, splendid as it is now, will become an object of contempt. Visitors will shake their heads saying, whatever happened here? What's the story behind these ruins? Then they'll be told, the people who used to live here betrayed their God, the very God who rescued their ancestors, rescued them from Egypt. They took up with alien gods, worshiping and serving them. That's what's behind this God-visited devastation. A God-listening heart, God-visited devastation, a warning. Forty years, first 20 years, Solomon is passionately walking with God. He's praying, he's, he's leading, uh, he's doing, he, he accomplishes all the things uh, that God told him to accomplish. His, his fame is throughout the world. It's one of the few times in all of the history of Israel when they're, uh, let me just give you the Old Testament, 
The ever-loving, never-failing God with his never-loving, never-failing people. Uh, in all the time of Israel, this is the one time under Solomon, because of what David had done, and, be, and during these 20 years when Solomon's at the height of his reign, during these golden years, it's the only time that Israel fulfilled its God-given destiny in the Old Testament by being a beacon and a, and a lighthouse for the good news about God. And, but it was different than us. They weren't to do, go take the message. They were to be the message and people were going to come to them and see. It was the only time people from other nations were gathering, coming to see what God had done in Israel. He, got a, he has a God-listening heart. He's passionately in love with his God. He has accomplished all the things that God has asked him to accomplish. Here, God also gives him a warning. Here's the way I was taught um, to look at the book of Proverbs originally, and the way most people in the church look at it today. This was the time, everybody will say, this was the time that Solomon wrote Proverbs. This was the time that Solomon wrote Proverbs. The first 20 years of his life, everything was going great. He was a model person. He was a good follower of God. And from that good following of God and all of that, all those good reports and having his life so together, from that, that was where the Proverbs came from. Came from him in all of his glory and all of his togetherness and all of his look at me and all of his I'm a prime example of someone who has a God-listening heart. And someone who passionately follows God. Then, 20 years of decline. So everybody said, well, you know, he wrote Proverbs because we look at Proverbs and it's wise and it's pithy and it's, you know, it's just seems like it comes from a good guy. So that was when he wrote it, when he had it all together. 20 years of decline. Shoot ahead, 1 Kings 11. Uh, the preoccupied king had done it all, all that God had warned him against. He built a magnificent palace, married pagan princesses, Accumulated large hordes of gold and silver. You know what Matt was saying? That true wisdom is a giving away of life wisdom. Uh, kept thousands of horses and, and um, made alliances with pagan kings and became a proud, out-of-contact uh, out king who even allowed pagan worship. And it's amazing. Just 20 years later, it could be so bad. Third appearance, God was furious with Solomon for abandoning the God of Israel, the God who had twice appeared to him and had so clearly commanded him not to fool around with other gods. Solomon faithlessly disobeyed God's orders. God said to Solomon, since this is the way it is with you, that you have no intention of keeping faith with me and doing what I have commanded, I'm going to rip the kingdom from your hand, from you, and hand it over to someone else. But out of respect for your father David, I won't do it in your lifetime. It's your son who will pay. I'll rip it right out of his grasp, even when I won't take it all. Even then, I won't take it all. I'll leave him one tribe in honor of my servant David, 
and out of respect for my chosen city, Jerusalem. And this was part of the promise that the, uh, the kingdom would never be taken from, uh, uh, from uh, Israel and that a descendant of, of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, would inherit the promises. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that the, the conservative, the so-called evangelical church has been teaching that uh, Solomon, Solomon wrote Proverbs when he had it all together. Because that had to be the time that wisdom would come out of his life. And, and feeling very uncomfortable with Solomon near the end of his life, we would kind of surface it and we'd explain it by saying, during the first 20 years of his life, he was such a good guy. That's when the wisdom came out of his life. During the last 20 years of his life, he was a mess. And that's when he wrote Ecclesiastes because it's kind of hopeless. Message, if your life is together and you're a good, 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 good Christian, you'll end up wise. I don't know about you. I kind of feel like I might not have a place in that tribe. I mean, I just know too much about me. That's what I love about the Word of God. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verse 9. This is an ending of, the, of Ecclesiastes. We know that Solomon wrote this, and he calls himself the preacher, the one who teaches wisdom. And more, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. well-driven nails given by one shepherd. This isn't talking to the cross. A lot of people try to, it's just like a nail that just hits the right point. It's the wisdom that talks right to my heart at the exact time I need it. And it transcends Solomon. It's coming from the shepherd. Peter says, the guardian and shepherd of my soul, Jesus Christ. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the end of his life. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. I love it that he says secret thing, whether good or evil. I, uh, I think it's very, very clear that uh, Solomon wrote the Proverbs from the perspective of having made a mess of things. He was still loved by his God. He came under judgment. 
he learned so much the hard way. Most of the lessons he learned was the hard, he learned them the hard way. He went through 20 years of heartache and pain. And near the end of his life, because we see in the book of Proverbs, the, uh, the template for biblical wisdom, he says, I want my sons, and through his writings to his sons, to all of us, I want you to understand uh, what I have to say from this perspective, that I made a mess of it, and you do not have to learn things the hard way. This is, uh, this just helps me understand uh, the Proverbs. It helps me understand the Bible in such a different way. Rather than the Bible being written, and notice the people God used to write this Bible. The people God used to write this Bible. Except for a couple of, I mean, there are a couple of guys in Scripture, they just, I'll be honest, they intimidate me. I don't, you know, I, like when I get to heaven and I meet Joseph, I'm like, I'm not in your crowd, buddy. You just, though Joseph, you had a little bit of pride there on that coat thing. <laughs> and if I'd have been your brothers, I think I'd have stuck you in a hole too. <laughs> I went to church with people like you. Now, I, I think that... Uh, Right now at Church of the Open Door, we're studying 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is all about calling Christians to be willing to suffer for others and suffer unjustly. Who would be the least qualified of all the disciples to write that book? Oh, it would be Peter. Because when Jesus is coming down from uh, Caesarea Philippi, down to Jerusalem, his one message to them over and over again is, I'm going to suffer and die, and if you want to follow me, you will have to suffer for others. And you're going to suffer unjustly. There's going to be injustice towards you, and you are going to be the one protecting those that the injustices are. uh, It's not about you, it's about other people. He would be the least... uh, ready, but because of all that failure and all that pain, and, and, and he's still, like David, he's still clinging to God. God said, chose, Peter, I want you to write the book on suffering because you didn't get it. You rebelled against it. You tried to find another way. You went through it, and I was able to sink that message deep into your heart. Now, you tell others so that they don't have to learn the hard way you learned. So I think, uh, you know, in heaven, when we're hanging out, however we hang out, I'm going to say, hey, Peter, and I, you know, I think I can hang with you, buddy. That's, that's okay. <laughs> Why, Peter says, well, because you, you're kind of a mess. <laughs> Paul. Paul is the one that God would privilege to speak about the grace and the mercy of God. That when you trust in Christ, you're invaded with life from above. You become a new creation. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You have resources that you never will have. Paul was the one that said, the law cannot work. You will never measure up. You can buck up. You can try. You can do whatever you want to do. It will not work. How do you know, Paul? Because I murdered Christians who used to talk about grace, and I was the best law keeper there ever was. And in Romans 7, you can read about it. I 
I was such a mess. And he writes Galatians, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty that would start the Reformation. God said, Paul, you're the one to write these books about grace because you're the one that learned your lesson the hard way. John, sons of thunder, he's got a little thing to ask Jesus. Just small thing. What? Just want to be the best guy in your kingdom. If you could just give me that, let's not tell anybody, but I'll just be right there on your right hand. What do you think, Jesus? <laughs> the other disciples are all... They're in the upper room. Oh, look at John, leaning on Jesus, just of course. Of course he gets all the inside knowledge. He's always just right there. Lord Jesus says, John, you're the one that I have chosen to write books about the love that you should have for one another. You're the one to write the book of 1 John, which talks all about this deep, deep life that we can share with each other. You're the one that your heart is going to scream to the church if you only knew what it's like to be in deep, deep relationship with God and others. Oh, let me tell you about it. They all have in common. This is the way I think we need to look at Scripture. I think we, got, we have it upside down. We have it upside down. No wonder some people aren't excited about the Bible because what they're thinking about the Bible is it's, a, uh, it's written by together people looking down and saying, sinners, Pieces of crap, dirtball people. You just get committed. You just measure up like me. And it'll all work out. Do read the book. Do it. <laughs> we laugh, but it is not funny. Lord, this, this is the shepherd of our soul with words like a nail pounded into the perfect place, words that are perfectly designed in eternity past, expressed through very frail, very failing people who have learned their lessons the hard way, telling us about the heart of God. And that's not the way it is at all. The Bible is more, if you had the guys writing scripture, the New Testament writers, they would just go, come on, man, listen to us. I want to tell you about this. This is the good stuff. You don't have to learn your lessons the hard way. I trust Proverbs a lot more if I know that Solomon wrote it after he had failed than I would if he had written it before he ever had a problem. I don't trust those kind of messages. The, the illustration I use on this is, you gotta take this by faith. Back in my younger days, I fought fire when I was much trimmer. I fought fire for the US Forest Service and one of the things that I did was I was a, I was a faller. <laughs> That's not me, Judy Underwood said I was way more handsome than that dude. 
And, and uh, as typical of me, once they decided they were going to let me be a faller, I was, I'm just, I mean, I've, I've just got such a dose of intensity and I'm, I'm so stinking over the top. Everything I do is excessive and, and I get to stupidity on and everything. So um, anyway, I... I always, you know, I'd always look for the trees, and we would have to fall trees on fire. Uh, they're called snags. It'd be dead trees that would be sending sparks across the line. And man, I'd, I would scout the line, I'd get way ahead, and I'd find one, then I'd go get the falling saw, and I'd do it, and, um, you know, pretty typical me. So I was doing this once, and there was this great big old, uh, huge ponderosa snag about six feet on the stump, and, and man, I had, and it was kind of dicey, it was still on fire. And, um, I, of course, I wanted to do it. And, um, and so I started, I just started right in. I started right in, and I was cutting away. And, and, you, and uh, there was this uh, big, gnarly root that went down, and it was kind of separated and went into the ground. And this old dude looked kind of like that guy. He's probably about 40 back then. I thought, he, you know, he looked ancient to me. But uh, So I had put my bottom cut in, and, and I was starting on the back cut, and the root was right there, you know. And I'm just cutting away, flexing my muscles, making sure everybody gets to see. You know, I'm the hottest faller on the thing. And this old, this old dude came up. He was, he was a, a real logger. He was a tree faller. For, and the Forest Service had hired him to come and fall trees. And I think they probably wanted him to fall that one. But, of course, me, I got there in first. <laughs> he came and he sat down on a rock. He had a big wad of tobacco in his mouth. And there's just something about this dude that, you know, you look at him and you're thinking... Oh, you know, whatever he has to say. And he said, he waved at me. He said, idle down your saw. So I idled down the saw. I said, yeah. And he said, uh, son, you see that root right there next to your leg? I went, you know, I'm, yeah. I see it. I'm looking down. I went, oh, shoot, there it is. One. Yeah. Of course I didn't see it. I was, I was, I was the first one there. And he said, uh, hey, here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. Where were you planning on standing when that, when the tree goes over. And we had been taught that you, the place you stand is right behind the tree because that's the safest place. So I got a text, well, I'm standing right here behind the tree. I give him a speech. I'm thinking, I thought this guy knew more than that. Of course I know where to stand. <laughs> a big walk back. He, he said, hey, here's what I'd like for you to do, buddy. If you don't mind, I'd like for you when that tree starts to go over, now trust me on this. Notice the word trust. Now trust me on this. You run to me. I'm just telling you this. You run to me. And, and I, I just want to go, no, I can fall trees. Done a lot of them. About six. <laughs> See, trusting doesn't come easy for me. I am so good at making my own way. Okay, I'll do it. So I had started the saw up again. I was a little bit put out with the guy. And I, you know, the gap, you watch the, when you're falling, you watch the gap, and the gap in the back of the tree begins to open up. And so I pulled out my saw, and I ran back to him, and I stood there like, okay. Had my saw. And where that root was, and where I was standing, the root was about this big around. When that tree went down, out of the ground, right where I was standing, from about 15 feet below the ground, that root goes, <laughs> it would have launched me, you know, 
to the moon. Oh, I won't finish that sentence for you, but you can imagine. <laughs> Not that I cuss. A lot. Um, anyway. And the old boy, he kind of smiled and tipped his hard hat back, spit on the ground. And he said, you learn anything? <laughs> yeah. To me, this is the book of Proverbs. This is the book of Proverbs. This is the whole Bible. You look at the landscape of Christians' lives. And right here somewhere is the word of God, the loving expression of God's word from people who have learned their lessons the hard way and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us how it is that we, and this is what I believe fear of the Lord is all about. It's not, it, it, it includes fear of the Lord because I, there's discipline when I mess up. But I think the fear of the Lord having to do with wisdom is I fear not knowing something that could be a part of my rescue. It's one of the greatest heartaches of being in ministry. There are people, you know, you tell them, hey, wait a minute, you read from the Bible. Don't stand there. Don't stand there because, man, I'm telling you, there's going to be a root shoot up out of there and it's going to devastate your family. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to hurt you. It's going to take you years to get past that. Just trust it. Trust it. And it was not about knowledge. It was not about discipline. When I listened to the wisdom of that old logger dude that rescued me from the disaster that I would have made of my life if I would have just been stubborn, I had to trust it. I had to trust it. The transaction is trust. That's the way it is with, with love. It doesn't matter how much God loves you. It doesn't matter how much God's love is expressed to you in his word. If you can't trust it, you will not receive it. And however many years God has give, gives me on this earth, I am going to say the message over and over and over again. If you could get it done by trying, then why the cross? I've had it to hear with these messages. Come on, Christian, buck up, measure up, be better. No, trust what he says. Trust his love to be the good and merciful expression through his word. We're so far away from trust in the church today. My last picture I'll give you. I have a, she's older now. She'd be embarrassed if I ever told this story, but I've got this little, uh, my, my uh, granddaughter, my son's daughter named Mary. And when she was about four years old, three or four years old, She's still, she's beautiful now, but she was the cutest little thing. These big old blue eyes, little old fat face and curly hair, you know. She looked like Annie type thing, you know. She, uh, for, really, she looked a lot like Shirley Temple when she was a little girl. And um, her dad, my son is an army officer, and so her dad had been deployed 
uh, to Iraq, and he was gone, and uh, they were staying with us a lot during that time, and my heart was just so full of love for her. I, uh, you know, during that year that, uh, that we were pretty traumatized over the whole thing, and, and looking at her, and I just, I just made it my goal to, to love her as well as I could love her. That was going to be my life assignment for that year. It's going to be my gift to my son. I'm going to love this little girl for all I'm, for all I'm worth. I'm going to try for just a year. So we both, you know, in SoCal, if you're, a, if you're a grandfather in SoCal and you get a Disneyland pass with me in a day in Disneyland, you're a hero. So, so we both, I went and we both got uh, passes and I couldn't afford it, but I did it anyway. I charged it. I know that, uh, you know, I'm just not very good. I'm not a good Christian and, you know, the, for all the stay out of debt guys, I just kind of blow that thing up and... Uh, so anyway, you know, it isn't, it isn't the together people, it's just people with higher credit limits. That are. But nevertheless, I took her to Disney, and I'll never forget. I'm going to try something with her. I'm going to teach this little girl grace and mercy. I took her to Disneyland, and, and she had been to Disneyland before with the Gestapo, her parents. And um, <laughs> you had too much candy, you can't afford that, you get too much candy. Disneyland, man, you eat some candy here. Tell my kids, if you don't want my grandkids to have candy, don't bring them to my house, man. Huh? <laughs> anyway, I'm such a bad Christian, I'm not healthy or anything. Um, so anyway, I got it right there in Main Street. Stopped right in the middle of Main Street. She's all, she's been there before. You know? I said, hey, Mary, name's Mary. Mary, look at Papa. Yeah. Okay, here's the deal. This picture, little Shirley Temple, blue eyes, looking up at Papa, little fat face. <laughs> this is our day, sweetie. This is our day. Whatever you want. Whatever you want to buy. Whatever you want to eat. Whatever you want to ride. I love you, hon. We'll do it. <laughs> She's frozen right in the middle of Main Street. <laughs> Whatever you want, sweetie. Papa loves you. Whatever you want. Anything. It's all about you, sweetheart. I just, I love you. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to ride. I had to go through it four or five times. She was frozen in place. And then suddenly it hit her. He means it. The message was just too good. She couldn't trust it. Never heard anything like this before. Someone loves me that much. It's interesting, her response. Once she got it, she became, you know, and she couldn't decide what she wanted to do. <laughs> it didn't matter how much I loved her. 
Until she trusted my love, she couldn't receive it. And I'm not saying at all that God is like a, the grandpa who, who gives you everything you want. That's a whole different category. But what I'm saying is that his love for us is just that intense. And this is, this is what I want you to know about biblical wisdom. It comes from the heart of God. And it is an expression of grace and mercy. And it's everything like a nail going right to the right place. The truths in this Bible are his expressions of love for you. The greatest expression being him giving him his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have eternal life. But John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Well, you gotta trust him. That's the deal. He died for everyone, but only those who trust him say, well, you know, I'm gonna trust you. It's the same way with the word of God. It's not about Okay, I'm reading this. Next week, I'm going to try harder. It's more, all right, Lord. I mean, I, I don't see it. I've fallen some trees before. But if you're saying that I ought to step back, this is, this is the Bible. The wisdom of God found in this Bible is his Love expression for you. And the next time uh, you read something in the Bible and you're thinking, no, this is just too hard. This is just, this doesn't make sense. Why would God say this? I just want to give you two pictures in your mind. One, of me falling that tree and what would have happened if I wouldn't have trusted the wisdom that was given to me that day. And two, I just want you to picture God looking you right in, right in the face. Because your face is as dear to your Father in heaven as Mary's little face is to me, but more. And I want, you pick, I want you to picture, as you're reading it, you're going, I don't know, God, this is hard. Like what we're going through right now in First Peter, I don't know, Lord, this is hard. You, you, you're telling me that if I don't pay back, if, I, if I'm willing to suffer injustice, if I'm willing to go on even when I've been wrong, if I'm willing to continue to serve you and love people even when they've been unfair to me, you're telling me that that's a good thing? It just goes against everything. I just want you to picture God the Father saying, I love you. I love you. I could not cherish you more. Oh, how I love you. Do you know I have a bottle that has all your tears in it? I count it all the time. Trust me. Trust me. Father, we pray that understanding that the Bible comes from your heart the Bible comes from your heart. It's written by messed up people just like us who through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit are telling us things that we can learn so we don't have to learn the hard way they did. I pray, Father, that each and every one of us here would be thinking of those things that your Bible is telling us that we just can't seem to trust. And this would be a day. Okay, 
If you said this about my marriage, I'm going to trust you for it. If you said this about my family, I'm going to trust you for it. You said this about me giving my life away, I'm going to trust you for it. I pray, Father, that we would always remember that the wisdom of the Word of God is an expression of your heart of love for us. We ask this as your cherished children in the name of Jesus. Amen.